Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Why do some people care about environmental conservation more than others? How can policymakers and other decision makers encourage pro-environmental behavior? And how do we wrestle with our own human limitations in processing and trying to address climate change? These are some of the questions raised in today's conversation with Susan Clayton, the Whitmore Williams Professor of Psychology and Chair of Environmental Studies at the College of Worcester. Dr. Clayton received her PhD in social psychology and currently studies the relationships between humans and nature, the degree to which the natural environment plays an important part in individual identity, and the psychology of justice. Today we'll be discussing the ways that people think about and make personal connections to the natural environment. Stay with us. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So, Susan, you're the first environmental psychologist we've had on the podcast, and I'd love to start this episode by asking you to define the field for us just a little bit. So can you tell our listeners about what it is that environmental psychologists generally study and perhaps how the field has been developing? Sure. So actually, environmental psychology has been around for a long time, uh, since about the 60s. And, uh, but it's not a really prominent branch within psychology. So a lot of people are not familiar with it. It really focuses generally on how people are affected by their physical environment. So that could be anything from uh, lighting levels to color to noise to crowding um, to architectural design. Um, of course, it's been affected, but it was affected by the environmental movement in the 60s, and it's been affected more recently by growing environmental concerns. So there's been a lot of research on how people affect the environment, you know, how do uh, or what motivates people to act in more or less uh, pro-environmental ways. And most recently, there's just been a an exciting burst of research on how people are affected by the environment, mm-hmm. by the natural mm-hmm. environment in particular. Great. So um, I think you've also referred to your particular branch of environmental psychology as conservation psychology. So as a sort of a subfield of the overall discipline, um, is there anything else to sort of mention about that subfield? And and I'm also, I always want to introduce our listeners to you as an individual as well. So if there's anything uh, you wanted to add about what drew you to these research questions, this particular area, that'd be great. Yes. um, So conservation psychology is defined as sort of using psychology to understand and promote a healthy relationship between people and the natural environment. So it's obviously quite broad, but it's thought of as a a way to draw on psychological research and theory to think about um, ways to get people to take care of the environment, but also to get ways for people to have interactions with the natural environment that are beneficial for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm actually trained as a social psychologist, um, which overlaps with environmental psychology, but it's not identical. Um, so I'm very interested in uh, people's attitudes and social interactions. And um, as a social psychologist, I started to, uh, and and somebody who cared about environmental issues, I started to notice some of the ways in which people talked about environmental issues. So mm-hmm. um, ways in which they described interactions outdoors, the way their their family would take shared vacations or the messages they heard 
um, from their parents uh, in, in outdoor settings about the importance of nature. And I just started to realize that uh, the natural environment had this psychological significance that, that I hadn't mm-hmm. been focused on before. And so I really wanted to, to delve into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you note on your website um, that your research examines the ways that people think about and and the phrase that struck me was and make personal connections to the natural environment. So, again, a sort of a baseline question. What do we know about why some people connect more than others? Yeah. And I'm going to back up for a minute and, and talk about what connection is. It's a, a very vague yeah. sounding term. And yet I've been impressed by how uh, for many people, they kind of immediately get that. They get what hmm. it means to be connected to their environment. Hmm. Um, and they, a lot of people understand that, um, you know, the worry that, that our connection to the natural environment is decreasing. And so right, uh, right. Th- that's a concern for people. Uh, what I was saying earlier about these social interactions in the natural environment, I think what we know is that early experiences matter a lot in helping people feel a connection to natural environment. And it's interesting that many parents, I think, are mindful of this, that, and they, it's important to parents to take their children to spend time in nature. And that can mm-hmm. be, you know, for some parents, it might be, you know, going out hiking in a natural park. For other parents, it might just be, you know, picnicking in a local park. Or mm-hmm. a lot of parents talk about taking their children to zoos so that their children can learn, you know, kind of to enjoy and to value animals. Mm-hmm. So these early experiences um, teach children that nature is important. And they also kind of teach them something about how to appreciate nature. And parents mm-hmm. might even say things like, um, let's just be quiet and listen. Or uh, they might talk to their children about just how wonderful animals are. Or, or in many cases, they might say, what do you think that chimp is feeling about you know, the way his brother <laughs> just took his food? So they kind mm-hmm. of encourage this perspective taking among their children. Mm-hmm. So these really um, emotionally significant experiences can be promoted by parents as well as, as others. But I also want to say that, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be something that happens when you're a child. Uh, mm-hmm. Even as an adult, you can have these emotionally significant experiences um, I think a lot of environmentalists are familiar with Aldo Leopold and how he he had this sort of moment, this epiphany when he saw a wolf dying and he refers to the fierce green fire that he saw in the wolf's eyes. And um, clearly that was a very emotionally powerful experience for him that uh, that led him to think differently about his relationship with the natural world. Mm-hmm. So Susan, are all of those... Are all of those experiences um, equal in their value? I guess that's what what your what your comments are making me think about is you know there is a difference between true wilderness and um, sort of a a nature preserve versus an urban park versus a you know a zoo. And here in Washington, at least, the zoo is still very much right in the middle of the city. So, is there? I just wanted to probe a little bit on that and ask um, is if there is any differential between sort of just how wild an environment you're actually living in? Or is it really just about being outside and in nature? That's a great question. And we don't really know the answer to that yet. I would say that's one of the questions that that people are examining, you know, how much nature is enough? And, Mm -hmm. you know, what kind of nature does that have to be? Um, There are positive effects, even of 
things as simple as, you know, looking at nature out your window or, yep. or having a poster on your wall or a green plant on your desk. I think that um, there's research on how people are affected by interactions with domestic pets, for example, and you can, you can learn some of those same kinds of perspective taking and empathy for others that I think are important. Huh. Um, okay. But research also suggests that, that still real, real nature is probably a little bit better at least than virtual nature and, mm -hmm. You know, wild nature may be a little bit better than, uh, you know, just going out in your backyard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it's partly in the perception. And if people think they're out in nature, um, they don't necessarily realize when they're in a space that looks natural how much, you know, human management is going on behind right. the scenes. Right. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay. So our lovely urban zoo here in Washington probably serves us very well then because it does feel like a, a little oasis in the middle of the city. I think it does. And you may know that um, I've done a lot of work in zoos and some of my research has found that people do describe these moments of connection in the zoo uh, and that mm -hmm. people who go to zoos tend to be more environmentally conscious than, than people who don't, um, which is not to say, you know, Many people don't go to zoos, and they can also be environmentally conscious. But those experiences people have in the zoo uh, can help to encourage that that connection and that appreciation for nature, mm -hmm. particularly because of the the social interactions that take place in zoos. So there, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of parents might go there with their children, or or people go there with school groups, um, so they can talk to each other about these animals, and mm -hmm. um, that might make the the experience more significant and more memorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd love to come back if we have a minute. Um, I'd love to come back at some point to talk about sort of trends in the types of time that we are collectively spending outside, because I'm sure there's an interesting body of research about that. But, um, but for the moment, so I definitely we've talked about connection and connection to nature. And connection is one thing, of course, but but action is is another. And um, so I guess I want to to sort of ask next, what drives individuals to act in what I would refer to and, and what you refer to as sort of pro-environmental ways? Um, are there a set of, of common characteristics that help translate that connection into action? There are certainly things that encourage action. And you're absolutely right that, you know, you can be the most uh, kind of have the most pro-environmental attitudes and love nature, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to, in fact, do anything to protect it. Um, some things matter. You need to know how your behavior affects the environment. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, many children love nature, have no idea about the impact of one kind of behavior versus another. So they're not going to be making a pro-environmental choice in that case. Sure. They don't um, even know what that means. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And even if you know, I do, I do want to behave pro-environmentally, you might not know how to do it. Like I want to, I don't know, uh, drive my car in a way that's more efficient, but maybe I don't know how to do that. So mm -hmm. knowledge definitely matters. Um, one of the other things that matters a lot is just how is, is your immediate context set up? Is it easy to do the pro-environmental thing or is it difficult? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to imply that, uh, that people are lazy, but absolutely, if we have limited amount of Sure. energy and time and other resources. So if something is easy, more people are going to do it than if it's difficult. Mm -hmm. So a context can be set up to make it easy for people to save energy or it can make it difficult. And then the third thing I really want to highlight is uh, just the social context. Um, mm. uh, 
what are other people doing? Because a lot of times we, we're not really thinking that hard about our behaviors and we're just mm -hmm. kind of following the cues of other people. So if everybody else throws their, you know, their recycling material in the recycling can, we'll probably do it too without thinking. Um, if everybody else, you know, turns out the light when they leave a room, we'll do it too. But if nobody mm -hmm. else is doing it, you know, we probably won't do it either. That's very interesting. And I think intuitively that probably resonates with all of us. And yet, um, how do you think then about how individuals can begin to change that dynamic? Let's say, maybe I should get more specific here, but you know, let's say that someone operates in a world in which people don't turn off the lights, as an easy example, and they want to be the instigator, the person who starts to change that social dynamic. Um, how do you think about, or what does the research tell us about interactions between sort of individual change makers and those social contexts, if that makes any sense? So what allows an individual to kind of uh, maybe be the groundbreaker and engage in the behavior that other people aren't engaging in? And, you know, that's a, a fascinating question and obviously a very psychological one. And um, a lot of research has looked at what allows some people to defy norms and do the right thing, do the altruistic thing uh, or the brave thing. It's, um, it's, there's no single answer to that question. Uh, I think people's upbringing makes a difference and their fundamental personality. You probably have to be a little bit of a risk taker to be hmm. a leader like that. You can also have an upbringing that highlights the importance of ethical behavior and uh, you know, pr provides you with role models for people who are doing the, you know, the brave or the innovative thing. Mm -hmm. So if your parents, you know, maybe, and, and I use parents, it could be other significant adults in your life. If your parents were active in fighting for social justice in other ways, um, even if it wasn't environmental, you've learned that idea of, you know, acting on the basis of your beliefs. So it sounds like it's both nature and nurture then, that there are both temperaments, but also patterns of learning over time that might incline people towards pro-environmental behavior, either within a group context or just as individuals. Absolutely. And, and most most behaviors come down to, you know, a mix of nature and nurture. I'll say that for any single behavior, um, the kind of immediate context is likely to be the most important thing. But if you're looking at patterns of behavior, you mm -hmm. know, does someone tend to do um, a lot of pro-environmental things, particularly uh, things that maybe distinguish them from the norm, uh, there's going to be more of a emphasis on the role of that individual's personality. Okay. All right. So let's talk about behavior change for just a minute then. And um, I think of a number of ways in which companies, governments have attempted to sort of nudge pro-environmental behaviors. And I I'm wondering, well, and more maybe more specifically, let's say a city government wanted to get citizens to recycle more, or a building manager wanted to encourage tenants to be more energy efficient. What are some of the psychological tools they might rely on? And what, are, what have you learned about behavioral nudges related to the environment? Mm -hmm. So the idea of a behavioral nudge is, is sometimes referred to as choice architecture. In other words, you present people, um, you think about designing the way you present choices to people. Hmm. And so one of the most effective ways of doing that is just to make uh, the pro-environmental option kind of the default. So that's, you're not forcing people to behave in that way, but you're making it, again, easier. You're making it more likely. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really important. Um, 
second is the the idea of the social context and um this has been used really effectively in a number of, of public domains so tell people what other people are doing and then give them feedback about how they're doing themselves and how that relates to the social context mm-hmm. um Wes Schultz, who is is another sort of social and conservation psychologist, has done a lot of research with his colleagues on ways of providing people with that uh, that normative information about what their neighbors are doing. For example, uh, he pioneered this approach where you give people um, energy customers feedback about how much energy they're using. Mm-hmm. And I want to highlight that the, the feedback, because a lot of times we don't even know how much energy we're using. So how mm-hmm. can we adjust our behavior if we don't even really understand what our behavior is. But then he said that in in the feedback, uh, they would also provide people with information about how much energy their neighbors were using. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if people were using more energy than their neighbors, uh, that had a really big impact on encouraging them to reduce their energy use. Mm-hmm. I must admit, I experienced this myself with my my energy utility, and it has very much changed my behavior because both sort of for the, as you say, the importance of awareness and just knowing how much I'm spending, but also there's a little bit of a competitive edge there and a, and a desire to... Um, to not be sort of a, a quote unquote bad actor when it comes to energy efficiency. So I have definitely changed my behavior after starting to get access to some of that information. Exactly. And I want to point out so that it doesn't sound like people are just mindlessly following the crowd, that this information about what are other people are doing also gives us information about what's what's possible. So mm-hmm. I might think that I'm being pretty efficient, but then I learned that my neighbor is using you know a third less energy than I am. I think, oh, well, mm you know, they must have found ways to be even more efficient. Um, Maybe there are things I could be doing that I'm not doing, so I might Mm -hmm. try harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And I want to mention uh, one other aspect of behavior change, which um, I think is a really interesting one, uh, you know, personally interesting to me and relevant to my research, is to remind people that their behavior uh, can link to a particular identity. So people, Mm -hmm. you know, have a number of social identities and they usually are somewhat invested in them and they want to maintain them and they want to feel good about those identities. And so you can um, encourage uh, sustainable behavior that's linked to that identity, like a place-based identity. Um, There was a, you know, anti-litter campaign some while back, I don't remember when, um, in Texas called Don't Mess With Texas. Hmm. And it was the idea that you don't want to let other people trash, you know, your beautiful home state. And right, it was apparently right. fairly effective. Some other researchers have found that messages that highlight sort of national pride um, hmm. and sort of the beauty of national natural scenery can motivate people to be, for example, more in favor of uh, renewable energy sources. Hmm. Interesting. So it sounds like there may actually be connections between different types of pro-environmental behavior, too. It's not just about clean places and therefore don't litter. It's about clean places and therefore a sort of a suite of activities that might lead to a cleaner environment. Is that Am I interpreting that correctly? Well, potentially. Um, people don't always make those connections. And that's one yeah. of the things that, uh, you know, both researchers and practitioners are really interested in is when do people make the connection between one kind of behavior and as you say, a whole suite of other behaviors. So there mm-hmm. could be that what's called positive spillover. You think, oh, I'm I'm recycling, you know, I should also reduce my 
you know, my energy use. Um, hmm, people may okay. not, people can make that connection, but they don't always. Sometimes there's even negative spillover where people think, okay, I'm, I'm doing my part. You know, right, I've installed right. a more energy efficient refrigerator. So now I can, <laughs> I don't know what, how you would respond to that. Now I can turn up my thermostat a little bit or something like that. <laughs> right, right. Well, and we here at RFF, uh, economists, the economists here often look at um, at the rebound effect where people will purchase more efficient appliances and then just run them more. And exactly. not usually enough to sort of offset the savings that they've gotten, but certainly that rebound effect is real as well. So mm-hmm. I do think that, um, yeah, that that comes into play as people consider their behavior. Yeah. And people also talk about the idea of moral licensing, which is that by doing a good thing, you kind of have bought yourself credit to do a bad thing. Hmm. Um, it may translate into the environmental domain, or it might be in a totally different domain. So I think one study found that when people brought their reusable bags to the grocery store, they were more likely to buy themselves ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have no such excuse. I just buy myself ice cream anyway, but now I'll have to watch whether that is augmented when I bring my own bags. You know, actually, on that topic of... um, of pricing and behavior change. Since we're talking about plastic bags, I feel like there are a number of um, jurisdictions in the country where even small prices on on things like plastic bags and straws and things like that have changed behavior. And of course, economists in general gravitate towards pricing instruments as ways of changing behavior. Do you have any thoughts about, about that as an instrument? Well, I'm completely in favor of, of plastic bag charges and straw charges, and uh, they, they've certainly been shown to change behavior. And one reason I like them is that, um, you know, people don't like to be told what to do, um, not surprisingly. So when you try to force them to behave in, in particular ways, there may be a backlash effect, what we, mm-hmm. we call reactance. But the idea of charging people for something they get, I think, is one that, that people can intuitively comprehend and mm-hmm. and not necessarily you know feel resentful about so say i will sell you your food for this much if you want a plastic bag there's going to be an additional charge or mm-hmm. you know if you bring your reusable mug to the coffee shop this is the price if you also want to buy a cup there's an additional mm-hmm. price so mm-hmm. i think that if it's explained correctly um these sorts of models and and it doesn't have to be very much money at all it's just a kind of reminder that you are getting something extra, so there's going to be an extra fee. It's enough to make people think about it mm-hmm. and then um, decide that maybe they don't need that thing after all. Right, right. Well, I want to turn to the perhaps the biggest looming environmental question of the moment, um, which is about the psychology of climate change. And we did have one previous podcast um, that touched on why climate change is a particularly challenging problem for for humans to sort of wrap our heads around and, and take action on. But I definitely think that's worth revisiting. And I'd love to ask someone uh, with your psychology background. So how do you think about the human sort of capability um, from a psychological perspective to to act on climate change? Are we poorly equipped? Do we have some tools at our disposal? Yes, is the answer to, to both of those questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think it is difficult for us to understand. You know, it's a confusing topic and it's it really requires uh, either just faith in scientists mm-hmm. or an understanding of you know, the way systems work, it's hard for people to think, how does my behavior as an individual possibly affect this entire global 
system, uh, you know, especially when we're talking about warming temperatures, it's the link is, is, um, is very complex. And also mm-hmm. the, the outcomes are, uh, a little uncertain. You know, we've got increasingly complex climate models and we have pretty good guesses, but nobody can say, all right, in the year 2069, this is exactly what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, not only that, of course, it's also very emotionally difficult because it's scary. Um, and it, threatens things that are important to us, like our Mm -hmm. way of life. Um, It might even make people feel guilty that they are contributing to climate change. Mm -hmm. So people are very good at not thinking about things that are unpleasant to think about. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to mention a a last thing, which is, I think, very important in, in, in this country, particularly today, is a social framework um, in which There's certainly increasing awareness and acceptance of the reality of climate change, but there's still very strong support for denial. So if you want to deny it, you can find people um, to kind of agree with you. And so, you know, if everybody else was saying, no, we we know climate change is happening, uh, it would be hard to be the one person who's saying, no, I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. But there, there are, you know, clearly significant figures out there who are encouraging you in your denial. So that is also um, another reason why it's hard for people to confront reality. But we do, we are a problem-solving species, and we've dealt with pretty significant problems in the past, and I'm sure we'll have more problems in the future. So um, people are learning capabilities of humans are just astonishing. You know, behavior can change on, you know, on a dime. And um, for any of us who are over, you know, 20 years old, Right, we remember what the world was like before iPhones, <laughs> and and uh, that technology has just transformed the way we do almost everything. And I shouldn't mm-hmm. just say iPhones, but smartphones. So I think that is a human strength that's going to be very important here: is our ability mm-hmm. to learn, to be flexible, and to change. And we do respond to climate change. We um, are affected by. Stories we hear about it, so it it may be hard to understand the the science. But if we read these very evocative stories of a particular individual or a particular community, um, that helps people to come to grips with it. I think. Mm-hmm. And I want to just hone in on one thing that you mentioned too this this question around guilt. And um, I would just want to ask, have what does the research tell us about guilt as a motivator for action? Um, I really have no idea the answer to this question, but I'd be really curious to know whether um, whether there are some trends that you've seen, particularly for these things where I do think in many ways people feel like they're just living their lives, traveling to work, flying to see their families, and that has translated into a sense of guilt around climate change. But um, But I think that's a hard thing to stomach when you feel like you're just Again, just living your life. So any thoughts on on guilt as a motivator for behavioral change? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I would say the research does suggest that guilt can be an effective motivator, but it's it's far from from guaranteed that it will have that impact. I think mm-hmm. because guilt is such an unpleasant emotion. Right. Um, and I suspect this there are individual differences here. Some people are more responsive than others to a guilt uh, kind of appeal, where other people just want to immediately, their response is going to be, no, it's not my fault. Right. <laughs> Whatever the question is, right? Yeah. It, it yeah. wasn't my fault. So guilt can, I think, in some cases, um, 
make some people more resistant to the message. I think the larger kind of comment here on your question is that different people do respond to different messages. So there's no sure. kind of one size fits all in terms of getting people to take action on climate change. Mm -hmm. Right. So much like we talk about with the policy levers, where there's no silver bullet, there's probably no silver bullet for the behavior change either. Definitely not. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's important, I guess, that we keep experimenting then and, and that researchers like you keep learning about what works in different settings. Part of me wants to ask one question about, you know, if you had a piece of advice for policymakers, you know, what would you, as a, as a psychologist, sort of advise them to take into consideration as they're thinking about policy instruments? What do you think about that? Well, to be honest, my advice would be consult some psychologists. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's Again, it depends on what kind of behavior they're trying to change and what the context is. Mm -hmm. um, but it would be good to get some input from people who study human behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and and, and I, let me back up a little bit and give a broader response. Human behavior is complicated. You can't necessarily assume people will react in the way you think they're going to. So it's mm -hmm. good to talk to somebody who might have some research uh, that will help predict how people might respond in a particular setting. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think we, uh, again, RFF as an economics institution is coming to realize just how important that human behavior is when understanding the efficacy of any of these policy instruments. Um, certainly you can model things, but but deeply understanding how people respond to incentives, how they respond to things like guilt and, and peer reactions um, is increasingly important for how economists think about these questions too. So I agree with you. Psychologists are a necessary component of this uh, sort of building the big picture here. Well, Susan, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I wanted to close our podcast with our usual ending feature, top of the stack. Um, so Susan, what would you recommend to our listeners? Something that's on the top of your reading list or your listening list or your watching list uh, that you think our, our listening public would find interesting? Well, that's a tough question because it's there's such a broad universe of things. But um, the, the thing that occurred to me uh, to respond to this question is a book I read um, actually earlier this spring by Elizabeth Rush called Rising. Okay. And um, the author is, uh, you know, just a writer. That's that's her job. Um, she teaches writing. In this book, she traveled around the United States, uh, essentially looking at specific individual stories as a way to examine how we'll be affected by a changing climate and also how we can respond. So she really kind of personalized um the experience of climate change, and she calls it rising, obviously, in, in reference to rising sea levels, but mm -hmm. talks about other aspects as well. And uh, one reason I like this book is that it was so at such a personal level, uh, but also it sort of demystified climate change a little bit. It's like, okay, let's, let's face it, it's happening. Here's what it looks like. Here's what people are doing in response. Um, so I would recommend it. Okay. Well, great. That's great. And I will note that my top of the stack uh, is very relevant for our conversation today. Um, I've actually really enjoyed learning about the psychology of climate change and have been doing a little extra reading. And so on the top of my stack is a guide that was produced by the Columbia Center for Research on Environmental Decisions. Uh, it was put out about a decade ago, but I came across it recently and I I found it very intriguing once again. Uh, it's called The Psychology of Climate Change Communication, and the sub subheader is a guide for scientists, journalists, 
educators, political aides, and the interested public. So pretty much everyone should find this guide useful, and I certainly have. And so with that, I'll close the podcast by thanking you again, Susan, for joining us on Resources Radio. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.